clearly, be about the work that you've called us to be about, spreading the good news, telling others of the gospel, leading others to hope in the Savior, through the Savior. God, we just are thrilled that you've selected us to be a part of that ministry. God, we just pray that you would bless this evening and that you would be lifted high and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Amen. If you have your Bibles, there's two places we're going to mainly be in. Uh, Luke chapter 22, we're going to focus on verse 44. And then if you'll uh, kind of keep a finger on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we'll be there too, uh, kind of working towards that point. Uh, but Luke twenty two forty four. every time, uh, every, every year it seems like, or any time I begin to meditate or to think about the cross, Luke twenty two forty four is a verse that, that always resonates with me and it always stands out in my mind. So I want to read it to you and then just kind of walk through it because there's something phenomenal that's happening, happening here. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, if you remember from our when I preached through Luke, if you're here for that, when I preached the book of Luke, we know Luke is a doctor, and Luke is the only gospel writer who records this detail that Jesus, when he's in the garden before he's arrested, when he's praying and the disciples are falling asleep and he's waking them up, he's like, pray that you don't fall into temptation, and they keep doing this over and over. Luke's the one who records this detail that his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. So the question we need to ask is, why? It's a real medical condition. It only hits when there's extreme amounts of stress. It's very rare, but it's always done by these extreme amounts of stress, extreme amounts of stress, extreme amounts of agony that's going to come up. And we know physically what's going to happen to Jesus on the cross, and we know that Jesus knows what's going to happen to him on the cross. And so we begin begin thinking through some of those things, but but there's more to this than just physically going to the cross for Christ. See, the Romans were not the first people to crucify people. They're the ones who perfected it, though. There's records that in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed because there was a Jewish uprising, 20,000 people were crucified. If you go into any Roman city, almost any Roman city, you'd have multiple people who would be crucified as you walked into the cities, and they would be alive most of the time still on the crosses in agony and in pain as a way to deter people from revolting against Rome. If you revolt against Rome, if you do something we don't like, then we're going to crucify you. You don't want that, so be on your best behavior. And we see for Jesus' crucifixion specifically, there are things that absolutely would have been painful and would have been hard and are hard for us to wrap our minds around now. He's beaten, he's spit upon, he's mocked, he's slapped while his hands were, were tied. All that's before he gets to Pilate. When he gets to Pilate, he's betrayed by the, the judge who's supposed to uphold justice. Pilate's a coward, and he doesn't want to rile up the crowd, so instead he lets a murderer go instead of Jesus. And so they whip Jesus with a cat of nine tails, which is a whip with broken shards of glass and bone and pottery on it. So you whip it in the back, and you'd pull it, and it would leave these huge gashes in the back. And Jesus gets 39 lashes, which is a significant number because 40 lashes is a death sentence. So essentially what they're doing is bringing him to the brink of death, but not killing him. And if you think about the soldiers that are crucifying Jesus, this isn't their first crucifixion. They've done hundreds of these. 
To them, Jesus is just another failed religious leader. And so what they do is they mock Jesus because most of the time they don't have a crowd for these things. But now they've got people cheering them on. And so they get a, a faded purple garment, probably one of the guards' old garments he was going to throw away, and they put it on Jesus. They get a crown of thorns with two-inch long thorns and, and shove it on his head. They give him a scepter that's just a reed as a way of mocking Jesus, saying, look here, you're, look at your kingly outfit. And so the beaten, swollen, bloody Jesus is being mocked as a false king by these guards, and the crowd is just chanting and cheering it on. about the lashes on his back and what would happen with that purple cloth on it as the blood soaks into it. The thorns evermore being driven into his head. The reed is taken from Jesus and he is beaten with it. And in keeping with Roman custom, they would force the prisoners, they would force those who were crucified to carry their cross to the location, the literal cross, and so they force Jesus to carry it to Golgotha. He takes it as far as he can. And then once there, the way you would crucify someone is you would nail them on the ground. Now, we, we always picture the palms, uh, but if you read the story, it doesn't say it really probably where they crucified Jesus was in the, the wrist. Uh, the palms, it's not strong enough to hold the body. And for the feet, what they would do is they would not stretch you out, but they would bend you in, and they would do one nail and nail you sideways. And so your legs would be bent, and you could have one nail through your feet and through your hands, and then they would slowly raise the cross up, and they would have these holes dug. And the way that they do it is they would shift the cross so they would fall into the hole. And so the first feeling you feel is just weight of just your weight dropping on those nails. Extremely painful. But the Romans... Their, their purpose for these wasn't just to do mass killings. Their purpose was for it to be painful. Their purpose was to keep people alive. The average criminal, they said in, in research, that was on the cross stayed there for three days alive. They would give you things to numb the pain. And eventually what would happen was it wasn't the pain, it was suffocation that would kill you're nailed, you can't breathe, everything is sinking and sagging, and you can inhale, but you can't exhale. The only way you exhale with this is you push up on your feet, which are nailed in, and you exhale. And eventually it's just so weak and so tired and just worn out that your body seizes up and you just can't do it. On top of that, you're naked when you're crucified, so you're exposed to the elements, humiliated. So it's important for us to think like, there's seven phrases Jesus says on the cross, seven phrases that Jesus has to press up on his legs and speak, so they're very intentional. But outside of those things, what we see Jesus do through his illegal trial, all of those things is he remains silent like a lamb to slaughter. He doesn't defend himself. He forces the Jewish people to act. He knows that his hour has come. This is the time. This is his control. This is the plan. So if we think back to Luke twenty two forty four, and we read this again, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground, we can understand why he might be sweating drops of blood. But the reality is, tens of hundreds of thousands of people were crucified, and nobody else sweats blood. 
So what is causing this stress within Jesus Christ is not the physical pain of the cross that's coming. There's something that's more stressful to him. We know from the other prayers that we hear Jesus praying at this very time that he continues to pray for this cup to pass unless this is the only way. So the question we have to ask is, what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? It's not the physical pain of the cross. Matthew 10, 28 is Jesus saying this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who could destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So what is the cup if it's not this physical pain of the cross? The physical pain is what we can relate to because we feel pain. We feel hurts. Bones break and they hurt. Cuts get cut and they hurt. So we can understand how that would be extremely painful and something we would want absolutely nothing to do. We can understand why that would be a deterrent from rebelling against the Roman government. We can relate to pain because so much of our lives are dealing with pain. Every store has a medicine aisle, doesn't it? Untold millions of dollars are poured into research on how to eradicate diseases, how to eradicate pain. And even outside of the medical field, people do not like pain, whether it's physical or emotional or some combination or something else. And so we turn to things to numb pain all of the time. We turn to food to numb pain, alcohol to numb pain, sex to numb pain, pornography to numb pain, drugs to numb pain, entertainment to numb pain. We'll, we'll focus on our kids and, and elevate our kids to these wonderful little idols to numb pain. Putting our hopes that, that maybe our pain, whether it's physical, emotional, or just loneliness or whatever, it can be alleviated by those things. Because honestly, most of the time being numb is better than just being in a consistent and constant amount of pain. But Jesus, at this moment in the garden, in this moment with the illegal trials, hanging on the cross and some of the worst physical pain that a person could experience, and, and Jesus has complete and absolute power to stop it. He's God. He commanded the winds and the waves to cease. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He is God and he has the power to stop all of these things, but he doesn't and he still sweats blood in the garden because he knows that the cup that he's going to drink the cup that he prays, God, if you can take this cup from me from any other way, if there's any other way possible for this cup to be drank, do that. But if you can't, then I will continue and I will be obedient. So the cup that Jesus is going to drink, we, we focus on the physical pain of the crucifixion or the shame or the embarrassment that Jesus must have dealt with. But that's not what he's sweating blood about. And in all of that, we haven't even talked about the apostles' response. Those 12 people that you've spent 30, or not 32 years with close, tight-knit people. Peter, 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 Peter. Peter has a sword and tries to cut off a guy's ear and fight for Jesus. But when the rooster crows and Peter realizes he's denied Jesus, he flees. And all of the other apostles flee too. None of that causes Jesus to sweat blood. Only the cup does. So what is this cup? I'm just going to power through a bunch of Old Testament passages to show you this. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Who have drunk into the dregs of the bowl the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15. 
Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and be crazed, because the sword that I am sending among them. A few verses later in Jeremiah 25. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, rise, fall, and rise no more, because the sword that I am sending among you, and if they refuse to accept this cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. Lamentations 4, 21. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. You dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished, and he will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Ezekiel 23, you have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large, and you shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. And you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and not shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Habakkuk 2.16, for you shall fill, uh, you shall have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. None of those verses are verses that we like to memorize. All of those verses point to what the cup is. The cup that Jesus is dreading so much that he's in agony over, that he's sweating drops of blood, is the cup of God's wrath. See, the way the prophets describe these these cups is that sinners are forced to drink them. And if we know our life, we know that sin always seems pleasant at the time. But what God is revealing with these passages is the true nature of sin. And that eventually, if we continue in sin and refuse to repent and refuse to turn from the Lord, then what the Lord says is fine. If this is what you want, then this is what you get. And you're stuck drinking these cups over and over until you become intoxicated on it or you become nauseous and vomit. But you have to continue drinking this cup because you're enslaved to it. It's the cup of God's wrath. See, what the cross reminds us of is that sin must be punished if God is truly just. If sin is not punished, if rebellion against God is not punished, then God is not just. And if God is not just, then he's not God. And Jesus knows this. This is why Jesus sweats blood. And it's also why Jesus doesn't end the crucifixion. It's why he stays. See, to a degree, the Romans killed Jesus. And to a degree, the Jewish leaders are responsible for killing Jesus. But Isaiah 53.10 says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering, forget he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What we must understand is that the will of God, God's plan was for Jesus to be crushed. 
because it's in the cross, on the cross, in the midst of all of that physical pain, that there's another pain that's taking place. It's more powerful, it's deeper, that's harder than being nailed to a cross, and it's the pain of God's wrath being poured out on Jesus. All of our sin, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, all of our sin deserves God's wrath. It deserves his punishment. And God is just, and he doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and pretend like it didn't happen. He deals with it. And so if we're believers, then what we understand about the cross is that Jesus dies and he takes the wrath of God that you and I have stored up, that you and I deserve to bear, that you and I would never be able to, like it's, it's what hell is, is dealing with the wrath of God, that Jesus drinks that cup of wrath for you and for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Matthew 27, 46, Jesus on the cross, pressing up on the nail to, to utter this phrase, says, Eli, Eli, lemak shabakti, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm. Jesus is quoting the psalm. That's the pain of the cross, but it's also the power of the gospel. Tens of thousands of people died on crosses, but it's only Jesus' death that was accepted as the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus is actually sinless. So only Jesus got what he did not deserve. And so he takes that punishment that he did not earn and gives to us a righteousness that is not ours. So that we can have what we did not earn, eternal life with God in a right relationship. But to do this, Jesus has to drink the cup of God's wrath for you and me. Throughout all of time, it's hard. We were talking about this in the class I teach on Wednesdays. This idea of time is hard for us to think beyond because we think at the beginning but then there's a, a season of before the beginning of time when it's just God alone it's an eternity past and God is an eternity future and so for an eternity past and an eternity future this is the only moment that the father and the son the father forsakes the son see Jesus's whole life is filled with him praying to God. If you go read the Gospels, what you'll find is often Jesus will do these big miraculous things and then he retreats away to go pray and to be with God. But in this moment, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment Jesus must drink the cup. This is the moment Jesus has been sweating blood about. Not the nails, not the whips, not the humiliation, not the shame, not the abandonment. Not that those are light things, but it is the wrath of God, drinking the cup of God's wrath that Jesus was worried about. 
I want to show you a, a picture. Uh, this is a picture that was carved on, I don't know if you can see it super well, it's a picture that was carved on the side of a building somewhere between the 1st century AD and the thir- or BC AD and the 3rd century AD. And what you see, the, the uh, right side, left side, uh, that's darker is, is an actual picture of the wall, but I didn't think you could see it well. And so the right side is somebody who's kind of drawn out what the picture is. And so early on, what you see here, uh, the, the, the words, I don't think you guys read Greek. Uh, I don't read it well. Uh, but the words say, Aleximenos worships his God. And what you see is a man standing there, and he is looking up at somebody who's nailed to a cross. But if you notice the head of the person on the cross, it's a donkey. This is maybe 60 years after Jesus' death. That Christians are already being made fun of for worshiping a God who died on the cross. There was another picture I, I wanted to show I sought some outside counsel and it said not to. It's a disturbing picture and it evokes emotions that are are strong. But essentially the picture is doing a similar thing. It's an actual photograph, like a photograph that a guy set up to take this picture of and it's of Jesus in an unflattering way. But we don't need those things to remind us of that. If you hang out with somebody and they stub their toe, Jesus Christ has just become a cuss word for many people. It's a fill word. Some people say like, some people say um, some people say so. I'll stutter every now and then if you catch that. That's kind of my fill. For a lot of people, they just say Jesus Christ under the breath. Because that's what the world thinks of Jesus died so he failed but the bible tells a much different story in first corinthians this is where i want us to to kind of land the plane here and see what really good friday is about first corinthians is written to a church in corinth that is all sorts of trouble and there's a lot of terrible things that this church is doing and so paul addresses them and what paul sees is that this church is divided in many different factions and so Paul starts by saying they're, they're claiming to each have their favorite teacher. So some people are saying, well, we follow Paul. And, and others are saying, well, we follow Apollos. And others are saying, well, we follow Cephas. And then you have the holy rollers who are going, well, we follow Christ. And it's just caused this massive division within this church. And so Paul writes this letter to which he says, I'm grateful that I didn't baptize a lot of you so that you wouldn't think you're better than other people. Instead, Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you 
verses later at the beginning of, of chapter 2, Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my messages were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, what Paul is saying here, which is so important for us to understand, is the world does not understand the cross. They don't get it. What they see is a dead person on the cross, and they don't understand that it is the cross that Paul says that is the power of God. In fact, Paul goes, I didn't come preaching to you prepared well. I didn't use words of eloquent wisdom. I didn't want to sway you by by being able to speak well to you. In fact, Paul says, it was in weakness that I came. I was in fear and in trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So that if the Lord saved you in those messages, it wasn't because I tricked you into doing it or I convinced you into doing this. It was because of the Holy Spirit pouring into you and revealing to you that the cross is the power of God. Because the truth that you and I know on this side is we know that Jesus died, but we also know what happens on Sunday. That he's not dead now. That he's resurrected. See, Jesus doesn't fail on the cross. He didn't end up on the cross by accident. He was freeing us from an enemy that the world doesn't even recognize. Cross and that he would die. And because there on the cross is where Jesus displays God's grace and God's mercy and God's love. Just as much as he displays God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness. That on the cross all of those things mesh together perfectly on Jesus. That's good news and that's why it's called Good Friday, not Bad Friday. And as tough and as hard and as grotesque and as painful as the cross was, it's necessary for our salvation. On the cross, Jesus offers a way for us to be made right with God, but it comes with a cost. And Jesus pays that cost for us. So then we obey Christ, we repent, we turn, we trust, we believe in Jesus. We believe what he did is true. And so we die to ourselves. we die to our sin, we die to our idols, we live to Christ, we take up our cross and we follow after Jesus. We're not saved by works. What works could you and I add that would make the cross more glorious? It's the finished work of the cross. And so we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And that is utter foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved, 
it's absolutely everything. I love Good Friday. I, I love Good Friday so much more than the Christmas stuff. Because it forces us forces us to think about the cross. And so often what we want to do with our lives is we want to manage pain. And so we want to to glimpse at the cross and then quickly get to the resurrection. We want to look at the cross and then just get, get there really quickly because that's where pain is alleviated. When the tomb is empty, then we know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. But what Good Friday reminds you and I of is that Jesus in space and in time, on our war, in our world, on earth, this same earth that you and I walk on, suffers and dies so that you and I might be saved. There's something powerful about worshiping a God who knows our suffering intimately, who knows how we're tempted, who knows the pain that we feel, who knows the hurts that we feel, who knows what the joys of life can be and what the lows of life can be, and who continues steadfastly to live a perfect life in the midst of those things and die so that we can be made right with him. it's hard I know we want to jump to getting out of pain but for a moment can we just sit in the cross and recognize that it is the absolute power of God let's pray God we thank you for today